Good morning, everybody. Woohoo! I did that for you, Steve. <laughs> he said he was looking forward to that woohoo, so I, I had to give it to him. But that was a little bit. That's a. I have cobwebs in my head. How many of you are feeling the same way this morning? I know at least one of you are because you told me that, and you're honest. Um, how many of you have cobwebs in your head this morning? Is it just me? Kind of have a little bit of cobwebs in my head, so. We're going to see how this goes today. All right, so we got to read this past week. One of the things that we're doing, if you're new here to Heights Christian Church, one of the things that we are doing is we're trying to go through the Bible in five years' period of time. And and as we're doing that, um, we read together as a congregation just a little bit of the Scripture six days a week. And when we come on Sundays, we kind of overview what we've read, and we either pick in part or in whole the passages that we're in to, to um, further our understanding of the Word of God and what that means for us so that we can follow Jesus better. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, the books for the epistles that are going to be coming out, uh, they're at the information desk. You can go ahead and pick them up. It's a big old thick book, and I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be awesome. I think we're going through 31 books of the Bible this year. Wow, that sounds really awesome, doesn't it? Because there's only 66 books. We're doing 31 of them this year. Now, many of them are like one chapter, five chapters, four chapters. So don't let that intimidate you too much. But we've been going through the Word of God, and we've gone through, since there's 66, we've gone through 35 before we started this year. We're well on our way going through the other ones that uh, we've talked about. And we got to finish this week the Gospel of Mark. Wasn't that awesome? You guys, I know I'm not the only, there's only like six of you who raised your hands for cobwebs. I think that that was wrong, okay? We got to finish the gospel of Mark. And Mark's gospel, you know, it reads differently. It's the same, and it reads differently. And I think Pastor Mark did a really good job in talking about this urgency, if you will. It's just to the point. It just gets there. This is what happens. This is what's happening. And Jesus did this. So we don't get as many details as we walk through the betrayal and the crucifixion and the resurrection as we would in, say, Matthew or Luke or John, who spend a lot more time in these areas. Because there's an, there's an imminency to sharing this message to the people that Mark, through the recounting of Peter, is trying to share. And it's really kind of his nature, isn't it? I mean, if you read, you know, First and Second Peter, if you read Acts and you look at Peter, it's always kind of to the point, it's urgent, it's now, this is the way that it is. And this is kind of how Mark goes through the crucifixion and resurrection. And we're going to spend time today in the resurrection passages, really the briefest of passages among the four Gospels. And we'll talk about that and why that is in just a moment. If you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 together. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, 
They were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll away the, the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And so we see a very brief scene here of the women going because we are notified at the end of Mark chapter 15 that the women saw where the tomb was. That is one detail that's very important that's in Mark's gospel. They saw where Jesus was laid in the tomb. They knew exactly which tomb to go to. It was not like they were just wandering around and going like, which one is it? They knew where it was. They had a plan until they, you know, in their grief, in their mourning. And, and those of us who have been in the middle of that, there's so much to think about when someone that we know has passed, right? And so in their grief, in their mourning, one detail, who's going to roll away that stone? That's a two-ton stone, and we're three women. It's not going to happen. Who are we going to get to do that? They went anyway, and they arrive at the tomb only to be surprised to see that the stone is already rolled away. Afterwards, walking in, and they see the angel who's sitting there, looking as a young man dressed in linen, who tells him that, why are you looking for Jesus? He's not here. He's risen. And go and tell. And it's an interesting thing that's mentioned here. Go and tell his disciples and tell Peter. What an interesting little detail, right? Tell his disciples and, and tell Peter. Why do you think there was some extra care in Peter's case? Maybe because he denied him three times? Maybe because Peter, after that, who wept bitterly, didn't feel like he was a disciple anymore? I think that that extra detail was to let them know, as, as we read in the other Gospels, you know, when Jesus says, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, and when you return, strengthen your brothers. I think that he's letting them know, I hadn't forgotten about you. I knew what was going to happen. And I'm here to bring you back to that rest, rest, restoration and that restorative relationship that we have together. And of course, trembling and bewildered, they left, wouldn't you? That'd be the most amazing, frightening, crazy thing you could ever hope to see. And then in your Bibles, you will notice there's probably a line. Or if it goes on to verse 9, after that whole section of Scripture, there's a subscript that says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. We're going to talk a lot about that today because I think it's very important. But let's first read it together to see what it says. Verse 9. 
When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who, who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on the sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So the earliest manuscripts don't have that. Later manuscripts do include that. Some scholars believe that Verse 8, from where we talked about trembling, was not the true ending of Mark, but it may have been lost in time. Others believe this is exactly how Mark and Peter wanted to have this gospel finished because it was an immediacy. He's risen. What are you going to do with this information now that you know that Jesus is raised from the dead? And it brings into question something that all of us are oftentimes assured of, but has come under increasing attack in our modern day culture. That's the inerrancy of Scripture. That's why my sermon today is called The Resurrection and the Inerrancy of Scripture. What happens when we see 12 verses like we do right here? that very plainly in our Bible say the early manuscripts don't have it. So why is it in there to begin with? Why do we keep it there? Other passages such as John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. There's a verse and I don't remember it off the top of my head. I want to say it's 1 John 5, 7. I want to say that that's where it's at. You'll find that many of your Bibles have it missing. It's, it's not there. Or, or verses is missing here or there from your Bible. And you'll look at the subscript underneath and all of the, the notes on there say some manuscripts have this, but others have not included this. Later manuscripts have this, but the earliest ones do not. Does this give credence to the charge that comes against Christians that says, well, the Bible has been changed for so long that we can't really trust what it says? Bart Ehrman, who's written a book called Misquoting Jesus, who is a self-proclaimed agnostic, I would call him an atheist, someone who tries to subvert faith of others. He states that there are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. 
And he goes on to quote that there are about 400,000 variants of the New Testament, which is ironic because there's only 180,000 words in the New Testament, more or less. Is that true? What does that do for you and me concerning the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture? I mean, think about what the Word of God says. Let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14, as we see Paul writing this final letter to Timothy, his protege who's walked with him 30 plus years in ministry. And he says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we read in 2 Timothy that the word of God is, by its very nature, God-breathed, that the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. They point to Jesus, they point to what he's done for us, and as a result, we can have confidence That the scriptures, being God-breathed, their origin is in God, can be trusted. So what do we do with 400,000 variants? And if you don't think this doesn't shake the faith of a lot of people, you're absolutely wrong. This book that I'm mentioning from Bart Ehrman is, from misquoting Jesus, was a number one bestseller. Large swaths of people are reading it and taking from it a corrupted message. And how are we to respond? How are we to understand these attacks? Because that's all it is on our faith, especially when we read passages like we just did in Mark. Consider what it says in Second Hebrews. Second, uh, second Hebrews. Wow. I told you I had cobwebs today. I told you I had cobwebs. I... Second Peter chapter 1, please. Starting in verse 16. Again, this is Peter, the one in whom Mark is getting the recollection from this. And we'll notice, again, this, this straightforwardness that happens. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you would do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. 
For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so both Timothy and Peter are saying the Scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, right? We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, correct? Therefore, when we're reading the Word of God, we're reading something that is inspired, has been given by the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? Because it attacks the very nature of who God is. There are some who would say that the, that the book of the Bible is merely a man-written work to try and understand God. And these scriptures are so important because it doesn't purport to be a man-written book. It's purported to be, according to God, according to the scriptures that we read, inspired, directed by the Holy Spirit himself. It's God-breathed. No prophecy of Scripture had its origin in the will of man. God used men carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the words that you and I read. Hebrews chapter 6 really kind of sets in motion why this issue is so important. In talking about the promise that God gave to Abraham, the writer of Hebrews mentions this, starting in verse 16. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs, uh, very clear to the heirs of what he pro- what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this by so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Now, if you read that, it's not very clear just in our English grammar understanding as we're reading through that. What are these two unchangeable things? I didn't see the list. Because you read that passage, it's a little bit confusing. The two unchangeable things are his unchanging nature and the fact that God cannot lie. So he gives an oath. So when he gives an oath, his unchanging nature and his word mean something. So when you and I begin to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we are dealing with the very character of God because God cannot lie. So if the scriptures are not true, then how can you and I have confidence that anything else is true in them? It's not a, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, you know, it's mostly true, or there's, there are these things that are true about it. How can we do that? As soon as inerrancy loses its inerrancy, and is no longer 100% correct in all that it says, then we're left with very unsettling questions. 
Questions that are exploited by people like Bart Ehrman who try to bring into our mind this idea that, well, if there's these many errors that are in the Bible, how could I ever trust it? And if I can't ever trust it, how do I really know that it's God's word? And if I don't really know that it's God's word, maybe it is just man's word trying to make an understanding of what they understand about God. But if that's the case, how much of it can I trust? And it's always a downward spiral. It never ends in that same spot. Because once we allow that inerrant word of God to be less than inerrant, how less than inerrant is it? Is it 95% true? And what 5% is false? Is it 92% true? How about 83%? 72%, that's still well up over 50%, right? See, those who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, who use things like these discrepancies that are in the Scripture to try and undermine it being the Word of God, do so, not so much that a person would believe most of the Bible, but rather that a person would believe none of it. Because eventually that's where it leads. It's the slippery slope. If you just take it to its own logical conclusion, you can't help do that. An extreme example of this was the Jesus Seminar in the 90s. Group of people who had already believed that the scripture was not true in the words of Jesus. They want to get to the very words of Jesus. So they would get together in their little committees and they had little beads. And these little beads were different colors. Like this is what Jesus most likely did say. This is, might be what Jesus said. This is definitely not something that Jesus said. And they're sitting there voting on the words of Jesus from the scripture as to whether or not he said these things. Where we have Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus. We have Mark, who is writing from Peter's recollection, who is a disciple of Jesus. We have John, who is a disciple of Jesus. All first-hand accounts. And then we have Luke, who has studied everything carefully so that he might present it to Theophilus and know that these things are true. But somehow the Jesus Seminar, 2,000 years removed from that, can vote with their little beads as opposed to somebody who was actually in the room with Jesus and tell us what his words were. Kind of crazy, right? But that's where we end up at. And there are a lot of people wanting to redefine what Jesus really meant on certain things in the Bible because it's not politically correct. And they want to undermine your faith in the Word of God. And so you and I need to know how to answer questions that are raised like this because there's some legitimacy to it and there's some need of understanding on our part of what inerrancy is. Because part of it is we don't understand inerrancy. Because now, some of you, when I started talking about this, you got little question marks going off in your head, but okay, a little crisis of faith going on right now. Verses 9 through 20, they're not in the earliest manuscripts, and now I'm trying to figure out, is this true? 
Inerrancy properly understood is this. Is that the original writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit and there's no error in them at all. How many of the original writings do we have? Zero. Nobody can go back and say, this is the first copy of the Gospel of Mark. We don't have it. This is the, we get close. I mean, we get darn close, seriously. We really do. Earliest fragment that we have of John is around 125 AD. That is probably a mere, you know, 20 to maybe 50 years after John actually wrote it. It's an amazing thing because John is the last of the Gospels, and yet it's the earliest fragment that we have. Inerrancy properly understood understands that, guess what? As people make copies over time, we're human, and the copies are not necessarily inerrant. But most of those discrepancies, see, there's a, there's a lot of... Um, manipulation with the, with, the, uh, with the numbers that are happening there. Because how can you have more discrepancies than you have words in the Bible? Uh, you know, I got 180,000 words in the New Testament and 400,000 discrepancies. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? It's like, wow, they, they couldn't spell. They're like me on the computer. Thank you, Google, right? So, like spell check, because I'd be spelling things wrong all the time. So, how does this work? How do we figure out what discrepancies are? And why am I taking the time to go through this? Because it's important, because the foundation of your faith is based in the resurrection of Jesus. And can we trust the very documents that are passed to us where this is one of the biggest questions are in these 12 verses? Why are they there? What's affected by it? So, it's important to understand this. A variant, most variants are simple spellings. For example, the largest part of the variants that you see are between what we would consider like in English. We have, if we're writing a, a, a sentence, you know, Bob flew a kite, okay? And then we have another sentence, Bob drove an automobile. We have this rule that in front of a, a, a word that has a vowel in front of it, we don't put a, we put an, right? They had the same type of problems in Greek. And so a lot of those is just a simple, oh, it should have been an an rather than an a. That's where a lot of these variants are, by the way. That's a majority of them. Not all of them, but it's a majority of them. So there are little spelling things that got twisted, right? Because grammatically, they're like me. They didn't get it right. Does that have anything to do with the original? Does that have anything to do with the meaning of the text? Not at all. Second thing we need to note is that variants are not done by just one copy. Because when we think of 400,000, you know, Variants, we're thinking, oh my goodness, there's only 100. It's like two per word, right? Isn't that what you, I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Two, two and a half per word. Like these guys got it bad. That's not how variants work. What they do is they look at all the copies of the New Testament of antiquity 
and whatever is changed from one to a different one of those copies is considered a variant. They don't have to be the same copy. Do you know how many copies we have of the New Testament? If you count just the Greek, about 6,000 which is much more than any other ancient document. If you count all of the ones that are not just Greek, we got about 25, 26,000. Now, when you realize that if there's a different spelling of a word that counts as a variant or of that, and it's in 3,000 of these copies, that counts as 3,000 variants, even though it was just one word and one misspelling. All of a sudden, that 400,000 number gets smaller really quick with each one of these, doesn't it? It's why you don't have a whole lot of footnotes at the bottom of your Bible because there isn't that much. When you take all of this into consideration, the New Testament by scholars who do this type of of study and looking at the variants have shown it to be between 99.5% accurate to 99.8% accurate with about only 40 lines of the New Testament in question at all and these being some of those lines. Of the changes that are made of words or numbers or or things that are found, various verses that jump into place, such as these, the change in doctrine concerning what is said is zero. There's nothing in these verses that cannot necessarily be found anyplace else in the Word of God, which is part of the reason it's kept in there, because they're not 100% sure. So they, they... Um, error on the side of saying, well, these are in some of these, so we're going to include it, but we're going to be honest. We're going to include a footnote and let them know that, guess what? The manuscript that we have, the earliest ones, don't have this, but the other ones do. We're going to include it, but we're going to tell you. We're not hiding it from you. We're not saying it's not there, and we're doing some trickery. Actually, what we're doing is we're trusting God with his word because the originals are inerrant. We don't have the originals. So if we ever dug up the original of Mark or the original of Luke or the original of any of these, we could be 100% sure that it's God-breathed, 100% right. There'd be no contradictions. You wouldn't have to worry about spelling or anything because the Holy Spirit carried along the people who wrote that down so that you and I would have the reliable, inerrant Word of God. So can there be little things over copies over centuries when you consider their handwriting? They didn't have Xerox back then, which would have been so great, right? Hey, just make me another copy of that when you're done so I can send that off. They would write it over and over and over again. And that God would provide that this would be 99.5 to 99.8% accurate to the originals should let you guys know that we can have trust in the Word of God. So what I want to do here is take a look at this list at the very end. Take another look at Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and carefully walk through this just little by little together. For those of you who like writing down notes and biblical references, I'm about to give you a lot of them, so get ready. 
When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom she had driven had dri- out of whom he had driven seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. Where do we see that happening at? John chapter 20. So in John chapter 20, verses 10 through 18, we see the account of Jesus talking to Mary. And Jesus running back and telling the disciples. Verse 11, when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Verse 12, after Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Where do we find that account? These are the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Found in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Much more detailed account than these few verses that are right here. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Where do we see that? Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. We see the account of Jesus appearing to the eleven again. Verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And where do we see that? Great commission, right? We go back to Matthew's great commission. We see the same thing, don't we? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And, and more importantly, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, because we love reading chapter 16, uh, 316, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him to save the world. But they don't like reading 18, because 18 brings in condemnation for those who do not believe. Any who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the one and only Son of God. Exact same thing, right? Is, is he saying anything different in this verse? Not a thing. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. When they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them all at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. John 14, 11 through 14, Jesus is talking about the miracles that he has done, and he promises his disciples that they will do greater miracles than these. It's kind of what we're seeing right here, right? It's kind of the promise. More specifically, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the day of Pentecost is Pentecost. Somebody mentioned that today, right? the day of Pentecost, what happens? We see tongues of fire come upon 
The disciples, the apostles who are there, and what are they doing? They're speaking in different tongues. We could look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where it talks specifically about the gift of tongues and its administration among the body of Christ. All throughout the book of Acts, you read time and time and time again that one of the accompanying signs of people coming to Jesus was that they spoke in different tongues. That was a confirming sign of the Spirit. It didn't happen every time, but it happened a lot. And we see that they'll pick up snakes with their hands. This is where, unfortunately, the snake handlers, you know, try and pick up and, and do stuff like that. Um, it's, it's not in temptation to the Lord. Please understand that. If Jesus wouldn't even cast himself down from the top of the temple at the devil's request, I think it would be good for us not to be picking up snakes saying, hey, showing my faith in Jesus. Let's not do that. However, at the same time, we do see in Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, Paul is on Malta, and while he's on Malta, he's gathering wood, and he's putting wood in the fire, and as a foot, wood comes out of fire, a viper, which is very clearly a poisonous snake, attaches himself to Paul's hand. He shakes it off into the fire, and he suffers no ill effects. The people there were like, oh, it must be a god then. And they'll place their hands on the sick people and they'll get well. They could point to a bazillion different places in the scripture. But specifically, we see some acts of Peter happening in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Healing paralytics and raising people from the dead. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, says that Paul's ministry in Ephesus was so great that he was, people were bringing their handkerchiefs to him. And they would go back and take it and people would be healed from their sicknesses. I give you all the scriptural references so you can see them yourself. So that you can see that this passage of scripture that's mentioned here in Mark adds nothing and subtracts nothing from the rest of the word of God that we're sure about. That's so important. Because there are those who would try to weaponize these discrepancies to try and undo the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture and so besmirch the character of God and make him out to be a liar. Because that's what you're doing. When you say the word of God in its given form is not inerrant, you make God out to be a liar. That Hebrews passage makes it so clear. But his unchanging nature, that when he makes an oath because he cannot lie, means that his word is always true. And we have the word of the prophets made more sure. Why? Because Jesus came and died for us. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. The disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Why is it important that you and I understand how to defend our faith and defend the scriptures and have confidence that the word of God is true? Because it speaks to the unchanging one who sent Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, 
rose from the dead to show that he conquered both sin and death and that life is given in his name and no other. If I make him out to be a liar, all of what I just said becomes in question. All of it. And if you and I are going to get thrown when everybody says, oh, that there's, there's an error here. What about this? What if it says this over there? Now my hope and my prayer is that through today we sit down and we can have more confidence. And I'm not worried about a small discrepancy here or there because the message is true. It's 99.5 to 99.8% confirmed. And that 0.5 to 0.2 or 0.2 to 0.5, whichever way you go with that, doesn't make a difference. Because that difference that we just did, and that's one of the longest passages that's in question. Is there anything in it that contradicts anything else in the Scripture that you've read? God knows how to preserve His Word. And you and I need to have confidence in it and to know it. Because the world around us right now needs it. And through the Holy Scriptures... They can become wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we know. Do you stand with me? Pastor Mark and I tell you guys all the time to be in the Word. This is why. You have to have more confidence in his word than the world who wants to tear his word down. This is why we've been spending nearly five years. We'll be finishing it this year. I'm so excited about that, of going through the word of God. But I believe it's the word of God. I pray after today you do too. God, thank you so much for this time that we've had together to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to look at your word that you have preserved so beautifully for us that we can have confidence that the words that we read are reliable and true and they point to Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, help us because we live in a society and a world right now that want to separate your word from you. But your word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's no separation between the black letters and the red letters because the Holy Spirit has inspired it all. So help us, dear Heavenly Father, to recognize this is your word and make us wise unto salvation unto Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And when the attacks of this world come, dear Heavenly Father, let us stand with confidence in knowing that you have preserved for us a rightful account of what you have done through Jesus Christ that we may be saved. That all who believe on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And let us spread that message to a world that needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.